Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 237. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here is your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 237 you're listening to. My guest today is Kieran Menzies. Kieran is a mixer, producer, and engineer based out of Los Angeles. He has done considerable amount of work with famed songwriter producer Rick Knowles, and he has worked with many, many people, including Dua Lipa, Keisha, Lana Del Rey, Willie Nelson, Nelly Furtado, Ra Ra Riot, John Legend, and the list goes on and on and on. It's Kieran Menzies coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right. I know we normally get our coffee cups at this time when I do these monologues, but today we're having a beer and we're going to talk about vacations. Disconnecting, right? I just got back from... uh, some family time in Michigan. We've got to come back and do some work. But before I get into the work, I'm going to enjoy this beer as I do this podcast. I'm just going to tell you, I really think, based on my own experience and how much I value it, uh, it is really a great thing to completely disconnect from audio. It's, I don't know, it, it's it's a weird position that we're in sometimes because I know many of us, I'm going to say an overwhelming majority of us, really, really love what we do. We love audio, no matter what discipline we do. We love it. It's a great thing to do. But at the same time, it's work. And like any job, it starts to wear thin after a while. So I find that by me taking a good long week off and not paying attention to the emails, the phone calls, the texts, or sweating it out over some audio detail. Oh man, I just, I relax. And it's great because I find that engaging with other people who don't do audio and just getting some different life perspectives because we're so inundated with audio perspectives all the time, I find that to be very rewarding. I have several sisters and brother brothers-in-law because my wife comes from a big family, but I was hanging out with them and, you know, some of the stories they tell me are boring office stories. And some of the stories they tell me are actually quite compelling and, and you can really kind of cherry pick uh, some different concepts or philosophical positions, I guess, uh, about what they're dealing with and how it applies to you. It's just, it's great to get perspective, you know? And uh, I have a sister-in-law who's a nuclear pharmacist, and she's got some interesting stories. Breaking away from it all has been uh, very beneficial this past week. Plus, it just helps to recharge the batteries, because after a while, you start to miss it. And you're like, ooh, I got to get back into it. And then you come back into it with not only a recharged battery, but kind of a a new, uh, a renewed sense of uh, focus. So... Don't be afraid to take that time off. I know that there's always something to do. There's always a backup to do, a mix to get out, a master 
a, a piece of dialogue, a, a deadline. But you know what? Just get it all, package it all up, get get all your clients happy, get it all out the door, and then go on vacation and enjoy yourself. Enjoy the people that you are around. And, you know, don't feel compelled to talk about audio. You know, I mean, unless somebody asks you about it, it's nice to just not even think about it and uh, hear about other people's lives and experience other things, you know. Uh, I, I did a, a river, uh, a lazy river thing in an inner tube for a couple hours. And, man, it's amazing, you know. Get out of the studio, get some sunshine, and just experience life. And uh, get rid of my studio tan. I think I'm, I think I'm doing okay. Anyhow, uh, you all know yourself better than anybody else. So figure it out. See if that works for you. I'm just here to be that voice that says, go on vacation. Go on vacation now. And just, you know, disconnect. It's great. So uh, here's to vacations and uh, taking time off and disconnecting and getting a, a renewed perspective. Uh, you can raise your beers or your coffee cups for my recovering alcoholic friends out there. Cheers. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and in a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out, and if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, 
and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Okay, vacation's over. Let's get to it. Let's talk to Kieran Menzies here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Kieran. Thank you. Well, let's dive right in. I always ask this question. I keep asking myself, should I ask a different question? But I'm always curious where somebody grows up specifically because it gives me a perspective on their growing up and what mm -hmm. what it possibly influenced them. So let's start with that. Where'd you grow up? That's a complicated question because I was born in Canada but I moved around a lot with my family. Uh, I was born in Toronto and almost immediately, like I think when I was one, we moved to Victoria and then we lived in Vancouver and we lived in Halifax and Montreal, interior British Columbia, Windsor. So that was probably all through the 80s and the early 90s. And, and then when I was 12, my, my family settled in Los Angeles and I've been here pretty much since. So I, I did high school in Westside Los Angeles. So that's like a, a good portion of my growing up, you know, puberty and growing into adulthood and getting getting into trouble and stuff. I got into LA trouble, but my early childhood was all all around Canada and driving back and forth all types of places because that's how we would travel when we, when we moved, we would take a 2-week road trip, go through the northern states like South Dakota, Wyoming, Michigan, Illinois, Montana, Washington, and we'd hit all the states and we'd do this 2-week road trip. And this happened probably twice a year because just my family moved around a lot. So that's where I grew up. You know, I always ask about culture shock. Canada and the United States, there's a lot of similarities, obviously. But coming to Los Angeles at that particular age, what was that like for you? Okay, well, my only exposure to L.A. at that point, and this was maybe a year or two after I started listening to N.W.A. and Snoop Dogg and Eazy-E, or Snoop Doggy Dogg as he was known then. And... I guess the only other exposure that I had had to Los Angeles at that time was the earthquake had just happened and the riots had just happened in 92. I think that's when it was. And then, oh, Boys in the Hood, <laughs> which <laughs> at the time I loved that movie. So that's the Los Angeles that I was expecting to write as we uh, descended into LA, that's what I was expecting. You know, I, I thought we were probably going to have to get some guns or something. Yeah. Snoop Dogg was going to pick you up at the airport and drive exactly. you through the riots and then take mm -hmm. you to the movies to see yeah. Boys in the Hood. And the ground would be shaking the entire time. Oh, of course. Yeah. Buildings toppling over. Would that be the Northridge earthquake? Yeah, the Northridge earthquake in 94. I We moved in the summer of 94. Okay. And that's when we drove in. So you just missed that, of course, so... Just missed it, yeah. But, you know, when I went to school, most of my classes were actually in portable mobile classrooms that right. were set up on the campus at that time because half of the buildings on the campus were unusable or unsafe because of the earthquake damage. Wow. So that's, that's the LA that I moved into. Although, you know, it was not a bad school and not a, not a bad area at all. As my parents, you know, wanted... They moved to where they moved so that I could go to that school. So 
I'm no stranger to earthquakes living up here in the Bay Area. Yeah. Well, so at what point did audio present itself and or music make an impact on you to where you thought, hmm, I think I'm going to get into the record-making business? I was probably in like 10th grade, and I went to the career counselor at my school, in high school. Uh And I said, I want to work in a recording studio. She hadn't had that question posed to her before. (laughs) Yeah, it's weird because it's Los Angeles. But I came to her with that. And this was after I I had a four track at home and I had done some computer recording with my MIDI keyboard. And she said that she doesn't have a connection with any music studios, but she would find something for me or try to. And and then, you know, probably a week later she did. And that was at 4th Street Recording, which is in Santa Monica. So I, I just started working there. And I kind of stuck in the studio ever since then. That became my, my last period of school. So not only did it mean like, I get to work in a recording studio, but I also get to leave school early. Well, so tell me about that experience. When you're coming into that, you're coming in, I assume, as a runner or, yeah. or somebody who's scrubbing toilets. Is that is that the case? Well, no toilet scrubbing. Oh. I don't know if they would put a 15-year-old through that. Oh, you missed out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Kathleen, who ran the studio, and I think she still runs that studio and still owns that studio, she actually had never worked with anybody so young who wanted to be in the recording studio environment. So she was also kind of like taken aback, just like the career counselor was at that time by, you know, having somebody so young who wanted to be in, in the cave of recording, but you know, she was, she was great with it. She had me do a bunch of administration stuff and coffee. And then I, I get to sit in on some of the sessions and eventually get to use the studio after hours with some of the engineers and, mess around a little bit and and learn some, pick up some hands-on experience. How did you get to Santa Monica? Well, that's where my parents moved to. Okay. So this wasn't any kind of major commute for you. No, no. It was actually a walk up the street. I I was going to Santa Monica High School. Oh. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, exactly. So, and you know, it wasn't the first studio that the career counselor reached out to. She actually, the first one that she found was Hans Zimmer's complex there in, in Santa Monica, which is now famous. And I went in there for an interview and those guys, they were like, wow, this like little kid wants to be in this environment. And, you know, I went in for an interview. I think that they didn't want to get in into it with somebody so inexperienced at that time. I don't think it was actually Hans Zimmer's place, but it was somebody who was operating us because he owns like basically a city block there. And it was probably somebody else in that studio complex who was working on his own stuff. But then the second interview that I got hooked up with was Four Street Recording. And I went in there, I met, I met Kathleen and I started that day. And that was a great environment, great environment, like rock and roll and super good. At the time, I think it was like Alien Ant Farm was doing their their album there. And it was a lot of fun, just meeting a lot of incredible people. What are some of the key experiences that you can remember from that that had a, had a big impact on you in terms of people or, or specific events? My best experiences there were probably just the after hours messing around sessions that I had with some of the engineers who were working there. But I really did love working with some of the bands. There was one rock band in there and I was sitting in on the session and this is like just a moment that pops out. And they're probably like a four-piece rock band that they were recording. I don't remember who it was exactly. And Jim Wart is producing, who is uh, Kathleen's husband. And they were trying to figure out how to make the downbeat of the chorus 
go, ah, like come at you a little bit harder and be more chorusy right on the downbeat. And I was like just observing everything. But at that point where they were struggling with it, I was like, you know, I spoke up and I said, why don't we find a sound on that DX7 over there and just like put it right on the downbeat? And <laughs> the response that I got was, well, we don't have a keyboard player, so how are we going to do that live? This was like the the school of, hey, man, if we can't play it live, then it's not going to go on the record, okay? So that's the response that I got, and you know, it was basically shot down. But it had always bothered me after that. I was like, well, why can't it just be in the studio? And I kept that in my mind. So that, that was one thing. And it, it's not like a great experience or anything like that, but it's something that sticks out when you ask me that question. What came next for you in terms of after the Santa Monica studio there, Forest Street? Well, after that, I had to finish high school, which I barely finished. But for my senior year, junior and senior year, I decided to take music theory courses at Santa Monica College at night. So that's basically what I started doing with my nights after my internship with Forest Street Recording. I did hang out at Forest Street a little bit after that because I was kind of a part of the family at that point for a little while. But I just continued to work on stuff at home, experiment, and I was taking music theory at SMC, as, as I said, and didn't really come across anything until after high school. And I, I worked a little bit for some local producers, got some odd jobs straight out of high school. You know, I had to make some money. So I started working at this tile factory <laughs> or workshop. It's this place up in Topanga Canyon family-run business. And who hooked that up for? Oh, my godmother, who lived in Topanga Canyon. She was friends with somebody who had a handmade tile company. And I went up there and I painted tiles for about a year, Spanish tiles. I worked at a pumpkin patch and a Christmas tree lot when I was 19. One of the things that happened when I was working at the pumpkin patch was I, I met a guy who worked for a producer. And I don't even know how we started getting into it, but he was a moderately successful producer at the time. So I was like, well, hook me up. I don't, I don't know how it came up in terms of like me selling pumpkins and him buying pumpkins, but somehow it came up in conversation that he worked for a producer and I got hooked up with that. And I worked with that guy for a few months, moved on. And then my godmother hooked up another great gig for me. She hooked me up with a man named Rick Knowles, who I've known for years now. And that was probably when I was 20, when I first met Rick. And he's a massively successful songwriter and producer. And I started assisting at, at his studio, which was in Studio City. And I, I kind of hung around that scene for a long time. When you graduated from high school, was you mentioned, you know, you know, I graduated from high school, I got to go get a job. Was that because your parents said, okay, it's time to get to work? Oh, yeah. The stipulation with my dad was that I can live under his roof, but I have to either be going to school or paying him rent. So I took the rent option because I was done with school. At this time, I don't think that Musicians Institute or any other places were there. And if they were, it's not as easy to find those places 
as it is now. Kids can go straight out of high school, and if they have any inkling to pursue a career in audio, great. You can just Google it, and Google will finish your thought for you now. But at that time, seeking something like that either had an intimidating search attached to it or an intimidating price tag attached to it, which, you know, the price tag is still there. So I, I just couldn't go for that stuff. And I felt like my experience at forestry and, you know, the stuff that I was doing on my own, I thought that I was going to be okay at, at some point. I thought that I don't really want to go to, I don't know what was around at that time, maybe LA recording workshop or full sale was probably in Florida, which I knew about, but I didn't want to go over to Florida. It just sounded like a lot of money. And I'm not saying that those institutions are valueless because I've met so many talented engineers over the years who've come out of those places with great educations. But at the time in the late 90s and early 2000s, it, it wasn't as developed an industry as it is now. They didn't really have the flow, I would say, that they have now. Now it's a little bit more of a machine. Yeah, now there's a ton of these schools. Yeah, yeah. And, and they do really well. And they, with their success comes a refinement of how that education process works. And I, I think that they've got something that's really refined now and, and comes through. It translates. Now, your experience with Rick, if I understand how your career developed, that was kind of the pivotal point, was it not? Because that's where some pretty heavy-duty things were happening that involved you. My godmother, who has done so many things for me, and she was somebody who was estranged from the family because she moved to LA long before my parents moved to LA. But when my parents moved to LA, we reconnected with that old family friend. And that was kind of what she did. She helped out young kids. So she was a godmother to many. She was, first and foremost, she was a Tai Chi teacher. And secondly, to help pay the bills, she worked at some local community colleges in I believe, if I remember correctly, she was responsible for placing people or, or helping people find careers or jobs. So she helped me find a couple of jobs. But it's it's a weird coincidence, the way that I got hooked up with Rick. Her neighbor, Chris Garcia, was an engineer who was working for Rick at the time. And she mentioned to Chris that I am a studio guy and I'm looking for studio work. And he passed my number on to Rick Knowles. Then I got a call to come in and meet Rick, and I went in there. And, or, you know, I was in there actually for probably an hour before I met Rick, and I was just walking around, and, and, and it was this house that's on the hill, on, on a hill in Studio City, and it overlooks the valley and Universal Studios and stuff. So it's big, like, landscape windows and, and everything. But, you know, that's beautiful and everything. But when I saw, like, the gear in there, <laughs> I was like, whoa, look at... Look at all these synths. Look at like this board and uh, Otari board and three rooms, three production rooms. I was just kind of like, oh my God, this is, this is a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> and I hung around for a little bit and kind of saw the operations. And then Rick comes in and the first thing he says to me, hey, good to meet you. Do you know Pro Tools? And I said, yeah, because I had been working a little bit on my Pro Tools LE system by that point. And he said, okay, great. You could start today. And I was like, okay. But that didn't mean that I started working on Pro Tools right then and there. I was definitely doing a lot of Starbucks runs and all that type of assistant stuff, which was great. I loved every minute of it. So that's kind of how everything got started. And 
it was a, it was a shock and it was uh, I'm glad that I had all of the self-taught knowledge, my experience at Forestry Recording, but even still with any of that going on, starting there was like just jumping into the fire and learning the ropes all over again. How is it different from Fourth Street for you? For one, Fourth Street was mostly, and this is just like a, a very superficial on the surface difference, but Fourth Street was a tracking studio where we would track bands. Also, Fourth Street was not when, during my time there, there was no computer screen in the studio. It was all on tape. And me personally, I was interested in, in technology and music because that's just where my heart was navigating. And Fourth Street was like more of an art and less of a business. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. Rick was working. He was working actively on productions that had a lot of money tied into them. <laughs> Okay. And 4th Street had bands and guys hanging out. So there was a lot of like the studio hang. But at Rick's place, it was just work, 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 work. Three rooms running at all times. And enough stuff happening where we would have to open up a computer system in a fourth room and kind of take care of additional stuff. So it was very like kinetic compared to 4th Street, I guess you could say. It was a happening spot. And a lot of people moving in and out. And session musicians, like people who weren't associated with any kind of band. It's just who plays the music on these pop records. Guys come in and they're there for an hour and they leave, which I hadn't really seen before because at 4th Street doing all the bands, it was, if you weren't in the band, then why Why are you coming up with why ideas on Why are you here, right. Yeah. <laughs> so 4th Street was more of like a mom and pop studio with bands coming in to record either you know hourly or daily. Yeah. Whereas Rick's place was more like a song creation factory. Yeah, exactly. And that's the other thing. Everything was, at 4th Street, Jim was doing all of his projects there, but definitely they, it was a for hire studio. So it, it was that kind of setup. But at Rick's place, it was just working. Everybody's like working solely for Rick. So there's kind of like this one icon and everybody's looking towards him and looking towards him for approval. And he was like, he pays attention to every detail. So people would have to run it by him. There was no like, I think that's going to work. <laughs> well, what are the what are the key things that you learn from Rick, either from production or business or dealing with people? It's hard to pinpoint some of the key things. I almost learned everything from Rick. Like he re reprogrammed what I thought of as music. I got a lot of tips on song structure and pop writing because I was mostly in the room when the writing sessions were going. I learned from his drum programmers and, and the people who were doing production work in some of the auxiliary rooms, how to make a beat, which I already was doing on my own, but, you know, became refined. I would say... One thing that sticks with me, and, and this was this is something that I've learned over the years, is that the scale can't be too big as to what you're going for. Because he has a few songs attributed to him that define the decade in which they come out. Because he started with Belinda Carlisle. He, he did Heaven as a Place on Earth. And when you hear that, I mean, that's an iconic Wow, no shit. Song. Hmm. And in the 90s, he had that new radical song, You Get What You Give. That's an iconic song, which I remember when I was in, I believe I was in high school at the time. It was everywhere and you couldn't escape it. And me, like coming from a little bit more of an alternative perspective or, or left perspective, I would always 
be thinking about how to subversively interject, you know, at Rick's place, subversively interject this kind of like left field stuff into college radio kind of mentality, which is great. And the world always needs that. And pop music always needs and pop music lives off of that. That's what keeps it propelling forward. But you can't use an example of some like moderately successful band or artist who's used the sound or whatever as like a reason why it's going to work. It has to all go into this key element as to why it's going to be the anthem and why it's going to be iconic. So so the way that Rick's mentality is is tuned to, and I still try to wrap my head around it, is just like it can't be too big or too iconic. He's always going for this generation-defining moment in pop music. And he's hit it a few times because he's shooting for that. He's not shooting for credibility all the time. He's not necessarily trying to get the the song, the top song of the summer. Like that's not enough. And a lot of people, and I see it more and more too these days, like a lot of people coming in and they're trying to get that flavor of what somebody's going to like today. But they don't think about necessarily about like what's going to keep it not just be the song of the year but like the song of the 10 year span that it came out in so that's something that being with rick so much i i continue to try to understand and and he definitely has like more of a grasp on it than anybody else that i've ever met (laughs) because he has had like definitely a few of them a few icons that he's been involved with Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. Sometimes I'll hear a song in my wife's car and and she'll be singing along. I'm like, who the hell is this? And she's like, how can you not know who this is? (laughs) Because there's just so much that just comes out daily and doesn't seem to, you know, it's, it's flavor of the month. Seems like Rick is operating on... Not not that level. He's operating on a whole nother level yeah. to go beyond that. So yeah. I feel very out of touch with day-to-day music. I have to watch all the award shows to really kind of get a grasp on, oh, this is what the kids are listening to. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I've been lucky enough to be a fly on the wall uh, on several meetings with and without Rick with some of the suits, the executives, the people in charge, the gatekeepers. I've not met Clive Davis, but those types of people, head of Interscope or head of EMI Publishing or something like that. And I see like most of the time, if you're going to be the head of a company that releases or publishes music, that's your goal. Especially you're not in a creative field. You're not trying to keep legitimacy or anything like that. You're, you're That's the business side of things. So you want to reap as many benefits as you can as many rewards as you can. This is interesting to me. I think a lot of us hear about meetings that you're mentioning. We hear about, oh, how is this type of music made? Yeah. But you are on the ground level, on the forefront of this to see it firsthand. And I know that, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole with this, but you know, music 
identifies a lot of people. A lot or a lot of people identify with certain types of music. And, you know, I've talked to people like Steve Albini, and Steve does not even remotely participate in this this world. But then that world exists and people are making music and they're making money and they're doing this type of business. This is one aspect of it. For better or for worse, and no matter what your opinion is, this is happening. Yeah. At what point did you become involved in making production decisions and establishing a name for yourself? Because if I Google you, the number one thing that pops up is Lana Del Rey. Yeah. Yeah. That was with Rick. Where did you make a transition to playing such a significant role? Okay. So no matter what in music, even if you have a nice job, you're always, you've always got your eyes open. And this isn't even just in music. Everybody, everybody's like looking for a way to make it on their own. To grow. Yeah, to grow. And I'm always looking for that. During my time with Rick, I, I left him a few times. And I moved up to Portland for a couple of years and opened up a studio there and tried to run that. But it was not in, in a great economic time. So <laughs> I came back with a bunch of credit card debt and started working at Rick's place again. And, you know, at that point, the timing synced up so that I would do a little bit more creative work at Rick's place, like mixing. I think right after I came back from Portland, we headed off to London for, I want to say about a year and spent our time there mixing and recording Cat Stevens's Return to Music, Yusuf. So at that point, I was like, oh, I'm so glad that I came back to work for this guy after my failed indie rock recording studio up in Portland. And then after that, I think that Rick moved to London for a few years and I stayed in LA and I was doing a bunch of little projects, side projects, self-released music and things like that. And when Rick came back from London after a few years away, we took a meeting with, with Lana and this was in either 2011 or 2012. And it was just like obvious, like what was going on there. This was before she was signed. What was obvious? What kind of artist she was going to be. Okay. Especially to Rick, because he has a, a, a great radar for that type of stuff. He has like, he's been in the business, but I, I think that it takes more than just experience to have like a, a radar that is that finely tuned. And he yeah. respected her work so much. I, I, video games was out on YouTube at that time, and it was getting a lot of attention, probably a million views, which was in those days a lot so she was starting to come up in the world and and it's such a beautiful song so we were like yeah let's do something i think it was hooked up by her manager or something like that the first song i think that they wrote together i think it was summertime sadness but you know that was definitely part even if it wasn't the first song it was part of that first batch of songs and that has gone on to become a big big song for her it, it just it was rick enjoyed the writing process with her so much and obviously she did too, because we continued to do everything together. And what was your role in all of this? Well, at that time, being at Rick's, just like being at any studio or being a part of any family, you do whatever needs to be done. But at that time, my role was engineer, and I had been Rick's main engineer for quite some time at that point, since moving back from Portland, which was probably around like 2003 or 2004, and then he left for London for a few years, around 2007 to 2010. And then when he came back, he picked me up again to come in and, and be his main engineer and mixer and stuff. So that's what I was doing. And part of that is 
doing all of the writing sessions, which is for Rick, the most important engineer, whoever is in the writing session, because that's the one who captures all of the creativity, which is what he's in the business of doing. So he picks those engineers much more carefully than he would pick, say, a production or tracking engineer, the one who can not lose any data during the writing session and is able to respond very quickly and efficiently during those kinds of sessions. So that was me. So I ran those sessions and continued to do all, all of the engineering on the records that he was involved with with Lana at that time. After her first album came out, we started working on the Paradise EP. I was doing some of the drum programming and all of the mixing and, and stuff like that. So it's just a part of like being in the room at the right time. And that's just how my role started expanding from being an engineer to mixing and programming. I'm curious, your time with Rick, were you surviving financially? Yeah, yeah. Rick, Rick took care of me, and he still does. He is wonderful. He treats his, everybody that he works with, he, he treats them very well. So yeah, he was taking care of me. Not a struggle. You know, living in LA, <laughs> there's a struggle, and that's a part of the city. You should have convinced him to move to Portland. I mean, he has the philosophy that if you move out of LA, you disappear off the map completely. And I've seen that happen to some guys. Yeah, you know, I was on salary with Rick, so I was comfortable. I was making things work. And, you know, I had a great deal on rent. So if, if you get that, then you're good. Yeah, great deal on rent, meaning you were still living at your parents? I wasn't living at my parents, but I had a really great apartment that... It's funny because it was passed on to me from somebody else who was in Rick Knowles' company. And when he moved to New York, he was like, hey, you want to take my apartment? I was like, yeah, I do. The way that he got it was from Rick's office manager who was living there pr prior to him. So it was kind of like a Rick Knowles apartment, Rick Knowles company apartment that was passed on through several employees of Rick. I lived there and, you know, my mom lives there now. So <laughs> it's still in the family. <laughs> it seems like a, a large portion of your career has been spent with Rick. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I'm, I was doing night sessions without Rick during the whole time, weekend sessions or whatever, and, and do the projects that were more attributed to me or people who would hire me. So I would always do outside stuff and always look for those opportunities. And I always had my eye open for a time when I thought I got to go out and make a name for myself. If you have like a corporate job, a, a salaried position at a corporation with a, a board, when somebody in the board retires or moves on or decides to call it quits, then somebody else comes to take their chair. But at Rick's place, Rick is the company. So if he decides to stop making music at any point, then there's no more company to work at. So everybody who's working for somebody in music has to pay attention to that. And you know, you always got to look out for a way to go out and make a name for yourself. And I think that a lot of people who have jobs rather than careers in music should pay attention to that. You know, it, it took a lot of people by surprise in the 2000s when all the studios closed. And suddenly there was like a bunch of salaried engineers and assistants who were great, but didn't know what to do then because they lost their job when, say, for example track record or, or, or a place like that closes. And anybody who's like a mix assistant or a big time mixer always has to be looking out for those. You always have it on your mind, like when can I go out and start mixing on my own <laughs> and take the, the credits that I have and will it be able to 
pay my rent and put food on the table and get the clients. This is really speaking to my constant badgering of my listeners on the concept of diversification, of making sure that you're not deriving all of your income from one source. Because if that yeah. source goes away or anything happens to that source, it dries up and you're not, yeah. and you're caught flat footed, not prepared for how you're going to survive. So it seems like you were kind of, you were with Rick, but you, you were mentally preparing yourself for other things. Trying to, yeah. I had a baby in, in 2015 and you're never technically ready to have a baby, but you know, when that happens, you just got to jump out and, and do it and, and go out on a limb. So it's the same as like, if you're working under somebody or, or for somebody and you know that you got to do it, the timing is never going to be exactly right. So you just got to like reach out and grab it at some point and hope that you land on something. It's, it's a lot of risk and it's, it's scary as all hell to do it. <laughs> I'm doing okay right now, but who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. What is your world comprised of now? You, you've known Rick for all these years, but... Yeah. And probably you still do some work for Rick? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. But you're doing other things. Yeah. I'm full-time on my own and mixing a lot of records, mostly independent records. And, you know, I was fortunate enough. The one thing that helped me stay with Rick, other than a great salary, was just the sense of moving up and growing under Rick. And, you know, I started out getting coffee. Then I started recording and hitting the space bar. And then Rick, who always respects everybody's opinion, started asking my opinion more. And then mixing more, doing more of my mixes would show up on records. And then getting into production and eventually like doing tracks with with Rick and doing getting writing on some of this stuff. And I think that... I, at some point just was like, well, what is going to happen? Like now that I'm kind of like doing productions and some writing and all of the mixing, how much further can I go at that place? Like I'm not going to be Rick Knowles. So I just decided that I think that it's time for me to be Kieran Menzies and just step out and try to take the credits that I've been fortunate enough to be involved in and see if anybody else out there is impressed by them enough to hire me, you know? Right. So since then, you know, I signed a publishing deal with Big Deal Music. 
been writing with a lot of bands around doing a lot of mixing work and a lot of production work on my own. And I continue to do work with Rick, though not full-time. What point did you make a decision to have a studio at your house? It's cheaper than having it not at my house. <laughs> it keeps, <laughs> keeps the overhead down. I mean, I have this house, and that's great. Uh, it's so wonderful to be able to live in a place where you can have space. So if you have space, then use it. How do you make the work-life balance thing work? Because it sounds like you have to do a bit of hustling and you and you have some connections and you know how to work those connections, but it's still work. And you have, as, you, as we discussed, you have a, a family. Yeah, that's like an impossible equation, I think. You know, you, you got to sacrifice certain things at certain moments and just know when to make those sacrifices. Sometimes I don't work as much as I should and I end up a little bit behind on my projects. But if I'm confident that I'm going to turn out a, a great product and the people I'm working with are going to be stoked, then I am able to spend an extra day with my boy. I have a, a great arrangement with my wife, who's a DJ, and she works at nights. And she's able to be with our boy during the days. And I could just be in the studio, which is only 20 feet away from our bedroom. So right now, the balance is is pretty good. I've seen things happen with a lot of people in the, in the music industry where they don't get to spend that much time at home. And I don't know, you know, it's, it's moving parts. So I'm not sure how, I'm still unsure of how it's really going to end up balancing or, and it's probably not going to be like this forever. It's, it's going to change. Yeah. And I just need to adapt to whatever it does change to. If there's a lot of work, then I'm just going to do all the work and we'll have to work it out and take it as it comes. I kind of just have to take it day by day or hour by hour and tend to the emergencies at home when they show up and tend to the emergencies at work when they show up. And, and sometimes if there's emergencies happening in both places at once, you just got to like say, hey, I'm sorry, but this is happening and just be the bearer of bad news. My wife is in the same position too. She She's a full-time DJ. So she has to say to me, like, I'm sorry, you can't like, you got to take care of the kid on that day because I got to do this. Right. So we just have to like be a team. Based on your experiences and how you've survived and made it work, what is your advice to others in terms of music business advice, how to survive? Well, I haven't figured that out yet because, you know, I don't know if I've survived yet. I'm still here. So it ain't over till it's over. <laughs> I've made it, I've done enough right now to have the things that I have and, and to have the work that I have right now and the equipment that I have, the things that help me work. But who knows where it's all going to go? Things change every day. And one week I might be working a lot and then I might have a month where I am unable to work. So I'm not sure how to answer that question. But the things that I have at this point that I'm trying to look out for is save money. <laughs> yes. I love that message. Because if if I have, like, I have to have a certain amount in my savings account, and, and it's very, very hard to hold on to money, especially in this city. But with, the, with our economic climate the way it is right now, I, I'm sure that people of my generation all over the country are having a hard time putting money or keeping money in the bank. But if you're going to go off on your own and be a freelancer in any industry, one of the most important aspects of it is to have like a savings account with 
three, six months, a year, 12 months that you can live off of. And getting that is is very hard, but that's pretty important. So I, I would say like, don't spend your money on gear or speakers before you are able to set up something for yourself to live off of. Because that's, that's going to be an important aspect. You know, you can't mix if you're starving. <laughs> that's true. That's, this is great advice. I'm really, I'm happy to hear you say this. I have to keep myself on top of that advice all the time because I, I, I buy gear. I buy gear and I say, hey, well, you know what? It, it's a write-off at the end of the year. So it's going to come back to me. But still though, and I've got a little mouth to feed. So I have to think about that guy as well. That's right. It seems that in spite of working on some high level projects, it doesn't always mean that it becomes a cakewalk for you. No, no, not at all. It's been lucrative. And especially since I was on salary with Rick and, and he took care of, of me for a long time. So that, that helped me to save money, you know, so I was in a good position and I'm still in a pretty good position, but I, I've been in the industry long enough to see it shrink, you know, where when I first was getting into music and recording, there was definitely a lot of cash flowing behind these records and, and records had big numbers. A, a successful record would be like, the record of the year would be like a, a 12 million unit selling record. So if you take the trickle down from that, like even a minor like indie hit or something that gets a little bit of college radio play would still be able to sustain somebody's living expenses for a while. But the climate now is much smaller. It's a smaller pie. And, and there's probably more people going for pieces of it. So it's a, it's a more open industry where everybody can be included. But there's definitely a lot less cash flowing through it because people don't buy their records at Tower anymore or spend their paychecks on music as much. And even if people are going to see concerts, that doesn't necessarily come back to or, or product endorsements, artists get product endorsements where they make a lot of money off of that. And the record labels, major labels make a lot of money off of that. But that doesn't necessarily come back to us guys who are in the studio. Right. So music will, will always have great cultural significance and necessity for humanity. You know, it's always going to be a part of our blood and we're always going to need it as, as a people. And as an art form, we're, we're definitely going to like look to music as, as something that gets us through the day or, or something that we relate to. But the way that the business is set up is not kind to the people who are actually creators and are enablers of that creation. During this period, I hope it's just a period, we just got to be vigilant about that and try and deal with the microeconomics and be as prolific as we can. And, and it's come to a point where we can't be sacred about what we specialize in. And, and we have to like, just kind of, what do you need? Yeah, I can do that. And kind of be the type of person who can reach out and, and do all kinds of things. It's That's coming right. back to you in nickels and dimes. So you got a nickel and dime to be able to sustain some kind of living. Yeah. Not only is that a good way to wrap up the conversation, but it's, it's just... It's good advice and a great observation of what's what's occurring yeah. and what others should be aware of. And I, I think that goes on all levels too, because even Rick and, and all the other songwriters that no matter how big they are or how small they are, we're almost all of us mixers alike and producers, songwriters, anybody who's working in music. It's almost at the point where we're all just kind of hanging out in the parking lot at the grocery store and when we get a, a dollar, we go in and we buy a scratcher. And we scratch it and see if we win. 
And if we win, great. If we get like a $500 scratcher, great. Now I can take that and go get some more scratchers and try to play again, maybe try and make it big. But that's really all it is. We're just kind of playing scratchers. We're playing the lottery at all times here. Even as a mixer, it's like you, you're trying to get be associated with the, with the project that is going to be the big, massive one that opens the floodgates for a lot of people to come to you as a mixer. And as a songwriter, you're, you're looking for that song that doesn't necessarily have to be a radio song. Maybe it's a big sync or something. You're, you're trying to, you're just like swinging. You're trying to get something that just connects. And, and no matter how skilled you are, luck is such a big factor more than I've ever seen before in what's going on here. Because that's like, we've stripped away the skill. <laughs> well, on that note, where can people find out more about you online? <laughs> That's like, I'm kind of elusive because I don't participate in, and this is like much to my detriment. I don't participate in social media. I'm not on Instagram or anything like that. So you can just email me. You have a, but you have a website. Yeah, I have a website, curonmenzies.com. We'll put a link to in the show notes to your website and people can reach out and email the elusive Kieran Menzies <laughs> <laughs> who's hiding out in his garage. Yeah, yeah, I'm just locked away here. I'm ready to... Or he's at the grocery store playing scratchers in the parking lot. That's, yeah, that's probably... You know what? I might even have better luck at some point doing that. Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) Who knows where it's all going? But that's... It's definitely... I get the feeling of that. Karen, great to meet you. Great to chat with you. Thank you so much for making time for me today. And I'm stealing time, I feel, not only from your your schedule, but also your family. So thank your family for me. Oh, it's a huge pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, take care. Kieran Menzies here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being here with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Want to thank everybody who helped out today. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale with the Working Class Audio theme music, and Mr. Chuck Smith for his lovely voice. Thanks for listening. Spread the word. Give us a like over on iTunes and uh, tell all your friends. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.